Good morning, saints of our Lord, and welcome to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Brady Finner, and pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Sartell, Minnesota. Thank you for tuning us in this morning on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. Today is Monday, September the 20th, and this next hour we study the inspired and true Word of God and put on our Christ goggles with Leviticus chapters 4 and chapter, excuse me, 5 and chapter 6. As it tells us to be holy as the Lord is holy, we hear of guilt offerings. We've had so many different kinds of offerings, it's sometimes hard to keep track. But this one also perks the ears a little bit because you hear the word guilt and we all have it. We hear of shame and we all know it. We all know that as part of our life and here we see a glimpse of our Lord takes care of guilt for them and also he does for us on account of Christ. So as we hear these words today, we remember that it's all gift for the gifts are ready, ready for you. Thank you to our friends at Lutheran Heritage Foundation for your support of Thy Strong Word. Visit lhfmissions.org for more information, lhfmissions.org. Helping us to be strengthened by God's Word, we have with us Pastor Chris Bernacki of Our Redeemer Lutheran Church in Florence, Alabama. Pastor Bernacki, welcome back to Thy Strong Word. Thank you so much for having me. And and like you, you said... You know, so I'm the pastor at Our Redeemer Lutheran Church, and um, our church is located, like, all the way at the northern westernmost tip of Alabama. Okay. You know, I would I would sort of just describe it as, like, a, a vibrant but small, you know, uh, Christian Lutheran uh, community of Christians in, in this area. Y- you know... I mean, we were talking about it a little bit, but the thing about it is, is there's not that many Lutherans <laughs> in, in in the Deep South, and so so our congregations are few, and our congregations are far apart. You know, our, the district is big. You know, it, it, it spans from from Alabama to Mississippi to to Louisiana, and and. And within that, there's not that many congregations, and so so our circuits are very large. But nonetheless, you know, Florence, Florence is a very uh, it's a very small but quaint and close knit town. You know, our we're we're located downtown. Um, we're across the street from North Al- or the the University of Northern Alabama. And so, I mean, there's a lot of potential within, you know, within our community to have have a lot of wonderful outreach and and effective ministry, especially knowing that the Lutheran Church has such a wonderful articulation of the gospel that that a lot of the people in the area are are relatively unfamiliar with. And and so so it it really is a wonderful place to be and and it's a wonderful place to uh, to grow our family. You know, we, I, I, we had, we had two kids and then in uh, November around Thanksgiving, we, we had twins. And so, so now we're, we're, we're a family of six in in Florence. And see, that's, and this is one of the beauties that we have here on KFUO is that uh, one of the, what we do with pastors is that we ask them and if they're available, they come on. 
And for you, you've been on Thy Strong Word a number of times in, in previous hosts. And, and thanks be to God that you were able to choose, hey, I just had twins. I might not have a lot of extra time. Has that been true with your twins? Yeah, that's, yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of why, because I had been sent a couple of times an invitation to do it, and and I didn't, and it didn't always work out. Sure. So, I mean, just having the twins and having two babies always doing the same thing um, <laughs> it makes it all places hard. But I feel like, you know, they're almost, well, they're about 10 months old now, so we're getting into a rhythm. Absolutely. Absolutely. So a reminder to our listeners, whenever you have something that our, our pastors bring up, something like this, I had twins. It's a great opportunity and a call for prayer for them. Giving thanks for our brothers and sisters at Our Redeemer in Florence, Alabama, a place that many of us probably have never known about. It probably will never be, but yet the gospel is there, as Pastor said so well, articulated all on account of Christ. And for that, we give thanks. And that's what our goal is here on KFUO, especially here on Thy Strong Word, to point people to Christ. So, Pastor, can you ask the Lord's blessings upon our study today in prayer? Sure. So let us pray in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, you are glorious, remarkable, worthy of praise and honor, and we thank you for revealing your everlasting covenants through your word. And we also thank you for the work of KFUO and also thy strong word. As we begin to study our text from Leviticus 5 and 6, as we look at the offerings and all the rules, help us to make a, or to come up with a deeper understanding about you. Help us to learn more about your love for us, more about your confidence, but also more about your son. Help us also to praise you, to remember you, and to serve you as our service might be missional and evangelistic so that many more might come to know and to grow in faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you have any questions concerning Leviticus, as we've talked about in this program, it is a it is a great reminder for us that all of God's Word is living and active, um, sharper than any two-edged sword, and gives us Christ. And so Leviticus is part of that. For many of us, we've never really studied it or haven't studied it much. And so there can be a lot of questions that you have on your heart or that you comes up in your mind. Send us an email, kfuo at kfuo.org. And we might not answer it exactly during this program, but we will try to, uh, to answer it in other programs and in a special way to make sure that we are answering all the questions that we can. So, Pastor Bernaki, as we look at Leviticus chapters 5 and 6, really, we're still kind of getting our uh, getting a taste for Leviticus, and it's, it's becoming a little more clear. We're starting to understand it. But uh, what do you, how do you want to begin? What highlights do you want to give to us, some themes, as we, as we have a, an introduction to today's study? Well, one thing I guess I'd say is, like, you know, when Luther said, I open the Bible and I see Jesus everywhere, one thing that I was, you know, pretty surprised about was that I, I actually find that it's not that hard to see Jesus in this book. <laughs> that when you just consider something like the fact that that Jesus is our the, the sacrifice and the final sacrifice, that when you read this book, it's not that hard to see Jesus. and 
you know, one of the things, because it is kind of hard to jump in to, to a text that I haven't been that familiar, um, like studying the other chapters as we made it up to this. And so I want to say, like, you know, I did try to imagine myself having to keep all of these offerings and keep everything straight. Mm. And, you know, you, you mustn't eat this portion, and you must offer this, and you must do this offering and that offering, and that means this or that. And you really wonder to yourself, like, how in the world could I ever keep this stuff? And perhaps one of the keys is that is that the that's the priest's major role in their society, and the priests function like kind of like referees in a sense. You know, like they I don't know that much about basketball, but but I can play the game, right? I I know how to play the game of basketball, but I'm not officiating it. And so so in a sense, I think that that's how it functions. Mm. That it began with something like confession. You show up and, and you tell the priest the problem, and then he helps you with the solution. Like, this is what you need. This is what you need to do. And, and it's his job to keep this straight. And, 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 and you could have, you know, living in this system. And, and that really affirms what we've heard throughout uh, our Leviticus study is God's people sin. And, and they need forgiveness because, as the Lord tells us, be holy as I am holy, that how do you become holy? Well, the Lord gives the instructions, um, and the instructions ultimately point, continually point back to him because he's a holy one, not us. But it doesn't mean that uh, we don't do anything. Is that it's very clear there's an active part of this, both priest and the lay people, and it addresses all of our issues, like, for example, that we have sins, we have sin offerings, we need peace, so there's peace offerings. There is a, um, um, uh, there's a need to provide for the priests, so they have grain offerings, and, and this goes into the peace offerings as well. And so today, as we see this, um, we see that we all have guilt, and then therefore, that's why we have this offering as well. Now, Pastor, I know you've done some studies on why are there so many offerings? Any, any extra thoughts you have on that? Well, you know, yeah, I, I mean, because I was just kind of thinking as I read through this, and I was thinking there's so many intricacies to the law. And the number one thing that I wanted to, to say is, is what you had also said, is that the beauty of it is that there is forgiveness. And that's ultimately what's being communicated. And it's not like well, all of this is just the priests having way too much time on their hands and, and just coming up with a bunch of stuff. It's, <laughs> it's true. Like the point is, is that God does care about sin. In fact, he cares about unintentional sin, mm. you know? And so far, I think if I'm right about this, I, I really think like so far Leviticus has been almost exclusively talking about unintentional sin versus intentional sin. Mm. But nonetheless, like even unintentional sin, stuff that you do by accident, matters to God. And, um, you know, and it can be difficult to keep straight at times, but I think the ultimate point is, is, is that, like, I think Leviticus should be read a little bit opposite than some people would say. It's like, well, God just loves us, and that means he would never demand all of this stuff. And besides, you know, um, it's not that bad, and it doesn't matter that much. 
and it's all going to be covered anyhow, right? I, I think it's actually like this is so important, and God loves us so much that that He, he actually does expect it, you know. And 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 there and there's ways in which He He fully intends to communicate His forgiveness to us. And that's a great segue for us to look at the beginning of the guilt offerings because it does, it brings up language of holy things and shows us the importance of why um, the seriousness of this so that when we sin, it's not as simple, well, God loves me anyways. Like that's not, that's not, if you read Leviticus and you still think that, well, my goodness, I mean, think about all the details they had to go through in order to receive forgiveness in order to make a sacrifice to the Lord, in order to know that they are loved by the Lord, you know, that kind of um, act, uh, is affirmed throughout Leviticus. And obviously, looking at the cross, you can say, well, no big deal. I mean, this really, I think, reveals to us even more so these offerings and the book of Leviticus. It shows us the cross even more crystal clear that it was not a simple process. It was not done with joy. It was, I mean, it was done with joy by Jesus, but it was not a joyous event for us to see. Um, but it was because of our sin that he's there, and we see the blessings of all the Lord's willing to do for us in these words. So, Pastor, any last thoughts before we dig into the text? Um, not, not exactly. I guess, um, I guess I'll have some thoughts once, once you know, <laughs> in this in this opening section. Very good. I mean, you know, the thoughts are not necessarily me trying to get you to talk about Alabama football or something. So just know that. I mean, you can throw that in any time if you wish. No. Uh, Anyways, let's let's dig into the text. That's why we're here. Leviticus chapter 5, starting in verse 14. Reminder to our listeners, we are reading from the English Standard Version. Verse 14. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, If anyone commits a breach of faith and sins unintentionally in any of the holy things of the Lord Yahweh, he shall bring to the Lord Yahweh as his compensation a ram without blemish out of the flock, valued in silver shekels according to the shekel of the sanctuary for the guilt offering. He shall also make restitution for what he has done amiss in the holy thing and shall add a fifth to it and give it to the priest. And the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering, and he shall be forgiven. I'm going to stop there, Pastor, because I think there might be there's many things we probably should um, break down. Because when it it speaks here, and this is kind of one of the more the most direct that I can think of in the first five chapters, is he's very much so that there must be atonement for what he has done. Like it's not like well it'd be nice to do. I mean it's very upfront. This must be done. Because he has sinned and unintentionally of the holy things of the Lord. So, what what is this sinning of the holy things? What do you, what do you have on that? Well, I think so. That could very well involve some form of like sacrilege, or or like a desecration, or perhaps like a misappropriation of something that should have been set aside by God. I mean, it it could be a lot of things. So so maybe it could be land. It could be valuables. It could be a grain offering that you should have off, you know, it should have like the first, the first harvest and a portion of that should have went to the Lord, but you ate it by accident. Ah, You know, it could be a violation of an oath. So I I think it could be a lot of things, but in particular, it does pertain to the holy things of the Lord. Um, 
and, and one thing to just emphasize is it says unintentionally. You know, even in the New Testament, there's an example where the Lord killed Ananias and Sapphira because they deliberately withheld something that was dedicated to the Lord. And, and so, so even in the New Testament, the, you know, the example is, is that, this, that this was very important and God took it very seriously. And so we look at this, there's very clear language of a ram. And for me, I, I really felt this the whole time in Leviticus. I can't help but think about Isaac and Abraham and how the Lord provided the ram. Here, once again, it has a common theme, without blemish. And here it kind of adds some, some monetary value to these. So this kind of shows that this guilt of which people were feeling um, was very real and is something with unintentional sins that we have a tendency to overlook those and go, well, you didn't retry. You know, this is something that we addressed in four and five, at the, at the first half of five, is, well, it's no big deal. How would you describe that in our culture? We have a tendency to say, well, if you, tr if you intentionally did that, that's bad. If you unintentionally, well, that's not so bad. How would you, how does God speak about that here? Well, like, in regards to an intentional or, like, unintentional yeah that, i i feel like that it you know in the in the in the next text so in chapter six it's 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 it is intentional at least i mean you know we'll, we'll kind of talk about why it's pretty obvious that it's like if you go deceiving your neighbor or you you steal from them or rob them obviously it sounds to me pretty intentional but but i think like 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 the issue here is that this is to the Lord. Um, if I understand some of Leviticus, you know, Leviticus in general, when it'll go on to talk about some more intentional sins, normally when it's, when it's intentional against God, I would, I would sort of attribute that to like the New Testament idea of like blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And in those regards, there's not forgiveness for it. But when it's unintentional, then there, then there's forgiveness. Now there is forgiveness when um, when it's intentional against your brother. Now now we'll 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 kind of notice that all sin is against God, but but when it's a but when it is kind of like a second tablet of the law type of sin, there is forgiveness for it versus intentional against God and the first tablet. And that's helpful, you know, too. Is that the way you've seen it? Mm -hmm. I was just curious if, like, like if that's sort of what you've seen so far. I've, definitely so far. I would, I would 100% agree with you because it is something that um, one thing that struck me from, from all of our guests is this that understanding of how God addresses all sin, although there is some pretty harsh language <laughs> for those who are intentionally sinning. And obviously throughout the Bible, you see some very harsh language and a, I would guess you would say, not a lack of patience because we know the Lord is patient with us, but definitely strong warnings about those intentional sins because you can no longer say, well, I just didn't really know. You know, it's, this, is, this is real, broken. You, you are going down a horrible path and it's a tool of the devil 
um, where sometimes the unintentional ones is one that the Lord quickly pulls us back. Um, and so, it, yeah, definitely, I, I notice that from chapter 5 to chapter 6. Absolutely. So, Pastor, any, I want to read to the end of chapter 5 so we can kind of get to this question, really, of what does it mean to have a guilt offering? So let's finish out the chapter 17 uh, till the end. If anyone sins, do in any of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done, though he did not know it, then realizes his guilt, he should bear his iniquity. He shall bring the priest a ram without blemish out of the flock, or its equivalent for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him for the mistake that he made unintentionally, and he shall be forgiven. It is a guilt offering. He has in, indeed incurred guilt before the Lord Yahweh. Now, I, I, I want to just ask this question. If someone were to ask you, you know, we're going through this in Leviticus, all of a sudden, magically, you know, right after you do this study with us, you want to do it in your own church, and someone gets to the guilt offerings, they're reading at home, and they say, Pastor, I don't get, a guilt with the, I don't get what this guilt offering is. What would you tell them? What is a guilt offering? Well, I think, like, so in general, a guilt offering is something that you, you know, that you do on account of something that has given you a guilty conscience. But, but I think that it's also, I think it's more than that. And the reason is, is because you see it within this text, all this talk about reparation. Mm. And meaning that, like, if we just leave it as guilt, like, Something I feel guilty about, and I might not even, I feel guilty, but I don't actually know why. Like, see, cause, like, the part of the text is about that, too. Like, I don't actually know what I did, but I, but I feel guilty. And, and so um, I think it's more than a guilt. It's necessarily more than just a feeling of guilt, because it also seems to address a liability that's incurred. Uh, you know, that, that's where the reparation comes in, and that literally you're required to pay a quantifiable debt, you know, more than just the fact that the ram is really significant and is one of the most valuable animals in their society. So, like, this is an expensive offering, but it's more than that because you also had to pay the 20% payment. You know, it, it just all shows how serious this issue is. But it's like, look, something was broken. And, and um, you can't just have the reparation because, well, you know, there's some things that money just can't fix. You can't just throw money at it. You know, something is broken, and you can't just pay for it. It doesn't always bring it back. But, you know, but, but so, so I don't think you can just have the reparation or necessarily just see the guilt offering, but they go together. You know, they, they just reflect the fact that something is broken. And and it needs to be, you know, and it costs something to fix it. There's there's actually a consequence here, you know, and what whatever it is. Like, it, I was reminded when I was reading this text of of a time when I was working at a different congregation, and there was this stone altar, and on top of the altar, there was like a, uh, um, like a, a piece of plastic. And then, and then on top of all that, there is this big, beautiful cross. And one of the the altar guild, they need, they needed to get to the to the altar because they were going to change a pyramid. And they picked up the plastic and didn't remove the cross, and it fell off the altar and it broke. Mm. 
and, 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 you know, the pastor at the time, because she felt so guilty and she was just, and he said, look, don't worry about it. It's okay. We can get this fixed. And, and she said, she said, you know, feeling so bad about it. She was like, no, no, I will pay for it. Like, I want to pay for this. And, and it's like, no, you don't have to. But, but the point is, is that like, in a very real way, though, it was and unintentional, but it still cost something, you know, and, and so, so whatever, you know, exactly what it is, because it's broad here, the holy things of the Lord, but nonetheless, there's a, repar you know, a reparation because it costs something. And that's where, boy, that's where the rubber hits the road, is when you're, when you're at a church and you break something that has been so valued by the congregation, and what precious words it is for us as pastors to give to people is to actually say the words, much like your pastor said, you're forgiven. D don't worry about it. Let's move on. You know, this can be fixed. Um, and it's so important for us to be able to do that in those little things, which, which kind of which puts a little more of a perspective on when we do pronounce absolution in the worship service and, and such. So I think that's a, that's a wonderful story for us to remind Because think about this, that cross, that, that Jesus falls, and it's, Instant guilt. And this is not a salvation issue. <laughs> no, this is not a, oh my gosh, I, you know, I, ruined, I ruined statue of Jesus, therefore I'm out or something. But just how quickly guilt can become part of our lives and shame and how the devil can use that to try to lead us away from the Lord and say, well, that's pretty much unforgivable. You were in the church and Jesus was broken. How can that be forgiven? Which I don't know. That's not in the Bible anywhere. But yet that's the kind of, that just gives us a glimpse of the guilt and shame that we all carry, and even more so the power of Christ and his cross for us. Pastor, I want to talk about that a little bit more before we move on to chapter 6, but right now we need to take our break. We are studying Leviticus chapter 5 and 6 with Pastor Bernaki, and we'll be right back. What's happening in Germany's Lutheran churches, where Iranian refugees are flooding through the doors? What new opportunities for sharing the Christian faith are arising in communist Vietnam, and how can my church play a part? Mission speakers, all LCMS pastors from the Lutheran Heritage Foundation, will come to your church free of charge to preach and lead Bible studies tying into this exciting work going on all around the world. To schedule your speaker, call LHF at 800-554-0723. And welcome back. We are studying Leviticus 5 and 6 with Pastor Chris Bernacki from Our Redeemer Lutheran Church in Florence, Alabama. Now, this is a, a complete side note here, Pastor. I brought it up before. And people in Florence, are they more loyal to University of Tennessee or the University of Alabama? Oh, for sure the University of Alabama. <laughs> okay. I, I, I might know one person in our church that, uh, that likes University of Tennessee, but only because they went there. Okay. <laughs> so, so, but yeah, that, yeah, no, it, it, to, totally. I, you know what? One time when I got here, my wife and and even I went to um, Tennessee Tech. Okay. And and we put out a sign, and people thought that was a UT sign, and they were really offended by it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so just to say, like, it was really offensive, and yet it wasn't even a UT sign. Oh, my. 
It's and uh, real quickly, my 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 step grandmother. My grandmother died when I was young, and my grandfather remarried a wonderful gal from Kansas, and she was a K State fan. And one time, I asked her how Kansas University was doing, and it was almost she was ready to get some WWE moves on me at that time. So I understand completely the offense that can happen. So there you go. Lord have mercy if you say the wrong word in the wrong state. So anyways. But back back on the farm, back on the farm, so far we've talked about these guilt offerings. And as you said, there is a definite transition in Chapter 6. So I want to make sure there's anything else that you wanted to highlight in uh, Chapter 5, those last few verses. Well, I, I think just to emphasize the fact that, I mean, I think that it's so amazing that there's that this offering is just, you know, primarily, though, dealing with, with a guilty conscience and relieving your guilty conscience. Um, just the fact that, like, that was Luther's problem, right? Like, I, have I given enough? Have I, you know, have I done enough? Have I confessed enough? Uh, you know, and, and he never felt like he had done enough. It was the existential crisis. I've never, I, I don't know for sure I've done enough. And there's actually an offering that, that helps you know, that helps to reconcile that, in, you know, for them in their time. So let's keep moving forward. As we know, the guilty conscience is real, and sometimes we need a guilty conscience because we're not doing what God has called us to do. So let's read about that in verses 1 through 7. The Lord Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, If anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor in a matter of, of deposit or security or through robbery, or if he has oppressed his neighbor, or has found something lost and lied about it, swearing falsely in any of all the things that people do and sin thereby. If he has sinned and has realized his guilt, and will restore what he took by robbery, or what he got by oppression, or the deposit that was committed to him, or the lost thing that he found, or anything about which he has sworn falsely, he shall restore it in full, and shall add a fifth to it, and give it to him to whom it belongs on the day he realizes his guilt. And he shall bring to the priest as his compensation to the Lord Yahweh a ram without blemish out of the flock, or its equivalent for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord Yahweh, and he shall be forgiven for any of the things that one may do, and thereby become guilty." So the Lord is very specific here. I mean, this is something where obviously the Lord knew this was going on. I mean, it's not like, well, you know, it's bad to steal. No, he's right in there. He's like, if you found something, if you've deceived your neighbor, if you've robbed, if you've done all these things, not only do you need to repent, but you need to pay it back. And if you and you pay it back, then you're going to have to pay a fifth more. And then you're going to have to buy a ram. I mean, this is like he is he is pointing his finger at somebody like John the Baptist and telling them, hey, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What are your thoughts? Well, yeah, I mean, one thing to notice is that that he does say, right, if anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord, mm. so he does very well see this sin as, as against him. But nonetheless, it's also a second table of the law, you know, um, so it's like it's pretty much the seventh commandment, right? You shall not steal. Right. And what Luther says is, what does this mean? You should fear and love the Lord. 
so that we do not take our neighbor's money or goods nor get them in any dishonorable way, but help him to improve and protect his goods um, and, and means by making a living. And so, so it, it seems like like that's what that's the nature of it. But nonetheless, the Lord does see all of these sins as a you know as sort of a breach of faith against Him. And so, as we look at this too, any thoughts on? I mean, this is pretty serious on what He's telling them to do. I'm reminded a little bit of um, Zacchaeus, you know, as he is invited by the Lord, or the Lord invites himself, I guess, to his house. And not only does he repent, but then he pays back a lot of the, the, the stealing that he had. And I think, wow, that'd be kind of rough because some of these people might have taken a lot of money. I mean, this was not only about repentance. This was about paying back, and that would have been terrifying. So you definitely, as you said before, you feel the seriousness of this sin and the seriousness of reparations, the seriousness of there needs to be payback in all this. And, and that to me, that really hit the heart very very strongly. I mean, any thoughts on, on that dynamic? Well, you know, I mean, one thing that I was kind of thinking as I was like considering our modern situation when people, people everyone likes to sue people for everything. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking to myself, you know, the way Leviticus presents itself, though, is to restore in full what was taken or what was broken or stolen, or whatever, and then add a fifth to it, so, you know, 20%. Mm. It, it's not, it's not like, you know, just add a million dollars to that, you, right. you know, and so, so it's like, but, but, but nonetheless, I, I mean, I, I just think that it has, that it also just has to do with the fact that, 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 um, I mean, there's an element that there, there must, there should be a reparation. There should be some payment involved on top of what what was actually done, and, and so so I mean yeah I mean I guess it's just there it is sort of written in the law of what the people had to do to to make up for it, um, and, and again it takes a ram, so and and a ram is a is a really significant offering in the schemes of the offerings that they would have done. You know, even reading through Leviticus so far, there were times when it was like, uh, it, it was something like a dove. You know, there's a, there's dove offerings, there's mm. lamb offerings, but a ram is, is, is one of the more significant ones. It's very significant to, because we have to be careful, and I've had to be careful with this, is it's so easy to try to use what's being said here and said, okay, this is what I need to do. And clearly, this is a case where we're not, we're not about to say you gotta get the rams, you get the ram out and, and start sacrificing, but it is good for us, and you've done this so beautifully today, is for us to show the seriousness of what the Lord was doing here, which right away points us to the cross. I mean, to think about all that Christ did for us and what He took upon Himself, that to give up a ram would have been a significant cost to these individuals. So right away. You know, like if someone steals, they don't necessarily put that into a savings account. You know, they steal it and they use it. Not only that, but then if you did, you raise your guilt, you go back, you got to pay 20% more. Like you said, well, let's just say they stole a million dollars. Well, that's a lot of money that you have to repay. On top of that, you have a ram that needs to be paid. So for me, this really, 
I mean, if you don't see, as you said at the beginning too, if you don't see Christ as the center of this, as Luther said, every page has Christ, then this becomes an impossible task of never being able to appease an unloving God if there's no Christ. Any thoughts on, on, that, on, that, on that reality as you read Leviticus? Well, I, I mean, I, I think that's exactly right. That, to be honest, I mean, we, we come from... We come from a, uh, you know, a, a position that is so unlike theirs. Um, you know, we're 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 within the the like the time when they're actually the Jewish the Jewish people right now are like celebrating Yom Kippur, mm-hmm. and it's like I see Yom Kippur is about Jesus, right, and that he's the sacrificial lamb. But 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 you know. I, it's so it would be very difficult to not see him like that and and then and so yeah i i really think that it you, you would you might be left in a position where you're where you know you're left feeling like you can't you can't appease god and you, but you try really hard to you know and you just can't do it especially when there are monetary things and you have to make up for what what was done and that's going to be expected of you so let's keep moving forward as it goes to the priests, and it's always a unique relationship, you know, because there's sin, there needs to be priests who can take care of these sins, and then there's offerings, and as you really spoke wonderfully at the beginning about all these different laws and the details and the offerings and so forth, now we get a, we kind of unveil even a little bit more um, about these offerings and the priests. So beginning in verse 8, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the law of the burnt offering. The burnt offering shall be on the hearth of the altar all night and until the morning. And the fire of the altar shall be kept burning on it. And the priest shall put on his linen garment and put his linen undergarment on his body. And he shall take up the ashes to which the fire has reduced the burnt offering on the altar and put them beside the altar. Then he shall take off his garments and put on other garments and carry the ashes outside the camp to a clean place. The fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it shall not go, and shall not go out. The priest shall burn wood on, on it every morning and he shall arrange the burnt offering on it and shall burn on it the fat of the peace offerings. Fire shall keep kept burning on the altar continually. It shall not go out. Now, we kind of make a transition here that connects us to the previous chapters. we got burnt offerings. we got peace offerings. We have a bunch of burning of wood. And we do hear of this, of course, you know, when they, when they took the ashes outside the camp. So we got a little bit of an alluding to this before this point. But I'd say I'm kind of confused. How would, you, how would you start us off on this in these verses? I guess the first thing is is that when it comes to this burnt offering that I think is important is the fact that it, that it gets completely burned up mm. and it's and you know it's burnt overnight as it says and it's and it's and by the by the following morning it returns to ashes and as that equates to like dealing with our sin it's like it gets erased and then it gets removed right they 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 have a special process where they where they put on special garments just to set the set the the whole thing up you know 
as special, you know, or sacred. And so they, they take it out and they move it to a different place. Um, but I, I just think the fact that it, that these offerings, you know, get turned into, get turned into ashes is a beautiful image that you could compare to like how God views your, your, your sin now that, that it, it's gone, right? It used to be the, in, you know, sort of imputed into this ram and now it's gone. And, and so, so, I mean, I, I, I at least think that that's what's so important about that text as every, as it's all reduced to ashes on, on this fire that, that keeps on burning, you know, it, it, it's never to go out. And it really is something that <laughs> it's quite it's, it's quite fascinating because you think of the eternal light that we'll have up in our sanctuaries quite often. Um, in my church growing up, it was the eternal light that was right above the lectern, um, just pointing to that this light of Jesus never stops. And you can't help but see the connection of how they needed to keep that burning going on in order for these sins to disappear. Like you just needed... You needed it to be completely gone. You couldn't have a little bit. It needed to be cleaned up. That fire needs to keep going because it has a refining um, reality to it. And then it points to Christ, who is that eternal light that never goes out. Of course, there's always that crisis in those churches that you know have the eternal light that sometimes goes out. That's always a crisis, but we don't have to worry about that right now. Um, but here, here it definitely points to that continual burning. Do you have anything more to share on that? Because I thought that was a... That's one thing that popped out that I had never noticed before. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, well, one thing is that it, they mention it. It gets mentioned three times in this text. So in, in verse 9, verse 12, verse 13. And so it's very it's very clear that, like, it's being emphasized. And, and then when you look back, you know, it, it's like God chose to, to appear as a continuously burning fire. Like, like to oh, Moses yeah. in Exodus three verse two, and, and God leads His people through the desert as a as a pillar of fire by night in Exodus thirteen twenty one. You know, so this continuously burning altar, I think, is just to remind the Israelites that God is really with them. In you know, His presence is with them, and, and I think that that's the same case that. You know, you know that that's like that's the point of the eternal flame in a congregation too. I mean, it's it's a nice feeling when you show up and it's like you, you know no one else is around or something, and it's like dark, but you see this flickering little red flame, you know, and um, it gives you a sense that 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 God is present, and that and and it always keeps burning. You know, I I actually think too that the when the temple was finally built. The Bible only tells us once that the fire was lit, and then and then it doesn't really say much more about it. Like the, the, the fire's lit, and then it's continuously kept burning. And and I believe that there's provision for that too. You know, you weren't allowed to make a fire on the Sabbath, but you can but you can um, add to a fire. And so perhaps that's part of the re- that's the provision. That's being made is that the priests actually do have to care for the fire, but what they're not supposed to do is create one. Wow. The connection, so beautiful <laughs> as far as how we, and we have to be very intentional on that connection because it can be, you know, fire can be, 
absolutely terrifying. You know, you talk to people in California or you talk to anybody. I know in Minnesota we had a big drought this this summer that to have a fire at your home was quite terrifying because you weren't sure how fast this thing could spread. Um, but at the same time, like you're saying here, it's light in the midst of darkness. It's a reminder of God's presence to Moses, to the Israelites. It's a reminder of Jesus being the light of the world as we hand a candle to a family with the light, of, you know, a flame on it. When a child is baptized, at least in our church, that reminds us that this light does not go out, even though the dad blows it out right away after we're done with the baptism. But anyways, all of that just shows us the, the, the glory of God in a gracious way throughout this time. So so I think this is something that, like you said, it's going to be rehashed a few times. So I was thinking about moving on. Do you have anything else you wanted to share in those verses? No, I don't think so. All right, good enough. All right, very good. So 14... I think I'll go all the way to 23, 14 to 23. And this is the law of the grain offering. The sons of Aaron shall offer it before the Lord Yahweh in front of the altar. And one shall take from it a handful of the fine flour of the grain offering and its oil and all the frankincense that is on the grain offering and burn this as its memorial portion on the altar, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And the rest of it Aaron and his son shall eat. And it shall be eaten unleavened in, in a holy place. In the court of the tent of meeting they shall eat it. It shall not be baked with leaven. I have given it as a portion of my food offerings. It is a thing most holy, like the sin offering and the guilt offering. Every male among the children of Aaron may eat of it, as decreed forever throughout your generations. From the Lord's food offerings, whatever touches them shall become holy." The Lord Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, This is the offering that Aaron and his son shall offer to the Lord on the day when he is anointed. A tenth of the ephah, of fine flour as a regular grain offering, half of it in the morning and half in the evening. It shall be made with oil on a griddle. You shall bring it well mixed and baked pieces like a grain offering and offer it for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. The priest from, the, from among Aaron's sons who was anointed to succeed him shall offer it to the Lord Yahweh as decreed forever. The whole of it shall be burned. Every grain offering of a priest shall be wholly burned. It shall not be eaten. So now, Pastor, it gets into the grain offerings, which we learned about in chapter 2. And what does it tell us about these grain offerings and the pleasing aroma to the Lord? Well, one of the things is, is that some of it gets burned, and and not as an expiation of sin. So it's not like it's not like what we already saw with like the ram offering. But but what you do see is that it that some of it gets offered to God as a gift. You know, just a portion off the top as a gift, and then the rest of it is to go to the priests so that they eat it. Um, you realize, you know, it, it, and it might be in, in, like in the beginning of the book of Numbers, but I mean, the the priests and the, the Levites, they don't have, they don't have land, and they they don't have the ability to like have like jobs that make money, like well, like the secular, you know, um, Israelites would. And so one of the things, the the provisions that God makes for them is that they they're able to eat of, of these types of offerings mm. and and which is a beautiful picture in and of itself anyway just the fact that 
they that they're eating in the whole in, in the holy places so they're like eating with god which i think you know you might even say like prefigures the lord's supper but but just the fact that god is providing for them by these means i think is really significant um you asked the question about like the the pleasing aroma to the lord uh you know and maybe it's not quite as obvious here because like for instance this is this is a burning of grain, you know, and, and fine flour, and there's some oil added to it, and then there's some frankincense, and and so sometimes you know I wonder if this really smelled all that good, <laughs> but then I'd say, well, yeah, but frankincense was added to it, so maybe then it did smell okay, but but nonetheless, I mean, I still think it begs the question, like, why why does it smell good or why does God say it smells good and I perhaps I just say well maybe it does smell good to the Lord you know maybe maybe the burnt offerings do smell good and so like I allow for that but I don't necessarily think that's the point And, and I also don't think per se the point is like do it all right and you'll please him by your work you know, I, I think God is gracious enough that he receives our offerings. And, and the importance is not so much the smell specifically, but it's more about, like, what the smell represents. And so Christ, you know, for instance, it, and then like Paul says in Ephesians, that Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering mm. and sacrifice to God. And so, I mean, you know, even there, it's the same language. And so it's not so much like the, whether or not God has this, you know, he's got a he's got a nose and he's smelling this and it smells so good to him, but more of what it's ultimately pointing to and the forgiveness that is communicated through it that, that pleases him. So basically, the way that this is a pleasing aroma is because it ultimately points us to Christ. I mean that's that's the ultimate uh, ultimate reality. Is that kind of in the right direction? As you th- said that. Right, right. That uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I think yeah that that ultimately Christ is the fragrant offering. Right. You right. know that all of this points to Him. Wow. And and one of the one of the realities too that Dr. Adam Koontz, who's from Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, he spoke in that language and he spoke about how it is given in faith. Obviously, faith in the Messiah to come as well. So, you know, you re- we do lose the point when we think that a sacrifice, the way they were doing it, would have smelled as good as a restaurant that you're walking by at about six o'clock at night when you're hungry. I mean, that's a whole. It probably didn't smell like that. It didn't look clean. Um, and you and I have talked about this too. Actually, I want to ask you this question. You and I talked about how did they clean all this? Did you find anything on that? These sacrifices and everything. Did you ever find anything on that? No, like, like, so, I mean, the, yeah, like, well, the question was, I mean, we, we see that the, the, uh, the, the ashes are cleaned off the altar and that there, you know, there's a prescription for it and, mm-hmm. and, and the, and the process, but what there isn't is say there, there doesn't ever seem to be any, any like discussion about how they clean the, um, the blood off the altar. Right. So with like a ram, there's a there would have been quite a big, quite a bit of blood, and it's 
build out and things like that. And there's no one, there's never been any discussion about how that, where that goes or what, how that gets cleaned up as far as I know. As far as you know. And, and so, yeah, I, and yeah, so, so I mean, like that just opens up the question, you know, I mean, because another thing is, is that there's so many offerings going on. You know, you notice that like Leviticus seems very, very um, personal, like, like Mm -hmm. all of these, all of these things are directed at, at at individuals having sin, but in the book of Numbers, a lot a lot more is it's like corporate. You know, Yom Kippur is a corporate. There's only there's only there's two goats for the people. You know, or or the uh, or the you know the 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 red the red uh, you know the red heifer. There's one of those. Mm. And so, so it's all like these corporate things. But then in the Leviticus, it's all it's all individuals have yeah. you know um, making these reparations. And so it, it begs the question that there's a lot of there's a lot of grain offerings going on, and there's there's a lot of rams being slaughtered. <laughs> and so, you know, so the fact that there's no discussion on how how they sort of maybe like cleanse cleanse the altar after after a ram is slaughtered kind of begs the question, but I don't have the answer to it. Right, right. And I know um, Pastor Stephen Tice, last Thursday, he spoke about how when they would do a sacrifice, it would get on the robes of the priests. And the point of it was that they don't clean it off because the blood from a sacrifice is different than the regular blood that we realize. And because this blood is a blood that will make you clean, unlike any other kind of blood. So that was his emphasis. He does not address what we're asking right now. So I invite our listeners, if there's any time in the book of Leviticus or in the scriptures that tells us even a glimpse of how they, did they clean these altars or was it blood after blood after blood um, after they did these sacrifices? It'd be great to know. Send us an email, kfuo at kfuo.org. We're going to finish out. We have about three minutes left here, Pastor. I want to finish out our text and say, okay, how does this affect us, and what are the connections for us today? 24 till the end of chapter 6. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the law of the sin offering. In the place where the burnt offering is killed, shall the sin offering be killed before the Lord Yahweh. It is most holy. The priest who offers it for sin shall eat it. In a holy place he shall be eaten in the court of the tent of meeting. Whatever touches its flesh shall be holy, and when any of this blood is splashed on a garment, you shall, not, you shall wash that on which it is splashed in a holy place. And the earthenware vessel in which it is boiled shall be broken. But if it is boiled in a bronze vessel, it shall be scoured and rinsed in water. Every male among the priests may eat of it. It is most holy. But no sin offering shall be eaten, from which any blood is brought into the tent of meeting, to make atonement in the holy place. It shall be burned up, with fire. So, Pastor, what are your last thoughts? We have about two minutes left in our time. So, any thoughts on these verses to begin? Well, you know, I several weeks ago, just in the lectionary, we saw that like the Pharisees had wanted to, like they were, they had all these cleansing laws. And one of the major things is that there were cleansing laws. They just were for the priests. The Bible doesn't say they were for everybody. At, um, all the time, and and so the you know the, the the Pharisees had added to that and tried to make it about you know like sort of in added it to their lives, 
so they're they're like we're cleansing laws and cleansing is important and like jesus never even says cleansing isn't important don't talk about it you know it is important but but that it just you know that that this was that all of this was to like to point towards him not to take away from him mm. and um so i mean i think that that's the that is that's the beauty of this text if you allow jesus to inform your understanding of it so pastor we have about 30 seconds left chapter 6 of leviticus or 5 into 6 um, how would you summarize it for somebody as we hear it today? Well, I think that God takes sin very seriously, but he's also provided provision for it. Um, with, with our Christian lens, we can see that, that God sent his son to take, to take all of our sins to the cross. And so, you know, even the text coming up in the lectionary is that Jesus predicts his own death. And, and and in a sense, they're baffled by it, you know, but, but at the same time, you know, through the lens of the Holy Spirit that we, that we can then understand that, that Jesus has, has been the final, um, the final sacrifice and that we can know we're forgiven. You know, we don't have to live with guilty consciences. Pastor Chris Bernacki of Our Redeemer Lutheran Church in Florence, Alabama, giving us God's strong word from Leviticus chapters 5 and 6. Pastor Bernacki, thank you again for the gifts. Thank you very much for having me. Saints of our Lord, a guilty conscience is real, and forgiveness has a high cost. It came in the form of a ram, of animals, of blood that was shed everywhere. And for us, we know that a guilty conscience can have its effects on us, but it is on account of Christ, the high cost of his blood and his righteousness that has been given to us, that he takes our guilt and he takes our sins and he gives us a clear conscience because of what he's done for us. We see that in Leviticus as it points us to Christ, and we see it in our lives today as we continue to look to Christ on the cross. I'm your host, Brady Finner, and pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Sartell, Minnesota. Thank you for joining us, and may he keep you safe in the palm of his hands.